Hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. My name is Alex with a normal voice for the first time in like the last two or three episodes or so, and with me as ever is my co-host. Alaric. Hello Alex. Hello. This week we're doing something particularly special. Would you like to detail what that is? Yeah, uh, so last episode we asked for submissions from listeners of problems that they have that we could do. Hmm. And so all three of our problems this week are ones from you guys. Maybe some of them are ones that have been sent to us in the past, but either way we wanted to give a good flavour of what it's like when people send stuff in to us. So we decided to kick it off with a bang and have all three being listener suggested. Yep. Apart from that, how are you? I'm okay. I'm off on summer holidays. I'm two days into the holidays. Very nice. I just booked my I just booked my summer holidays off actually. Um, not in terms of like the actual holiday itself that got booked a while ago, but the uh, the time yeah. off work. Yeah, two weeks at the end of August Ooh. is what I've got. Plenty of time for Minecraft. A lot of time for just sort of laying around at home and eating Doritos. It's going to be great. There is a short holiday will be involved in the, like the last four days of that, but the rest of it's all just going to be just reading books and yeah, drinking Strongbow. I sent you a video of my new wings. Yes. For those of you who are following the, the wing saga, Alex's wings are coming along quite well. The mechanism seems to be in place. He just needs to actually make like feathers and stuff for it. Yeah. I need to decorate them. All of the uh, the bolted together wood is in place. I can hook them up or pull them down and they work opening and closing as mechanical wings. Uh, this is your first engineering project ever since you built that clock out of Lego. I've done stuff in between. Last summer holidays oh, yeah. I built that puzzle box. You did build that puzzle box, which I had the, the joy and pleasure of, uh, um, I don't know, I guess interacting with? How, what's the verb you use <laughs> with a puzzle box? Doing. Yeah, the most Doing. general of verbs. So I, I built a, a puzzle box out of a cigar box where you had to uh, tilt it in a certain way and there were magnets involved and eventually you could get it undone. It was puzzling. Hmm. I don't do, like, engineering things. Uh, what do I do? Finance. Oh, I learned, I learned things on the piano. That's it. That's my hobby. Well, um, bring it to the podcast at some point, Alex. That's your one knowledge. One of these days. Well, yeah, I'm just sort of getting into a lot of jazz lately, so... Yeah, maybe. Maybe, if you're lucky. Right, should we get into this? Yeah. Once again, Alaric is leading two things, and I'm leading one, as usual, but they're all your suggestions. So, what is the first one that we're going to be doing? So, this one's of the genre Prisoners in Hats. There are lots of problems which all look quite similar. What I wanted to do before I go into this problem suggested by a listener is to do one which is similar to bring you up to speed with the way that I'm going to be thinking about this problem because this problem I haven't solved and I need your help on but I thought okay. I could do a problem to illustrate the sort of thinking which is going to be happening probably then together we could work on the problem okay Hit me. so imagine you've got 100 prisoners and they're all wearing hats and all the hats are either black or white mm-hmm. and all the prisoners are buried up to their neck in the sand and they're in a line so that the prisoner at the back of the line can see all 99 in front of them, the next one can see all 98 in front of them, and so on. So everyone can see yeah. everyone in front of them. Maybe on the hill yeah. or something. Yeah. A warden is going to go along the line, starting with the person at the back, who can see the most, and is going to say white or black. And that person can either say white or black. They can't con- transmit any other information by putting in pauses or saying something else or that, that sort of thing. Let's say that if they try to transmit other information... Everyone is killed. You can't do any get-outs in this. If they get the colour of their hat right, then they get to go free. If they get it wrong, they get shot. No matter what happens, 
The warden then goes to the next person in a row and says, black or white. They go along the line, and the object is to save as many people as possible. Everyone knows the situation, and before they have their hats put on them, they're put into a room for half an hour, and they're allowed to come up with some sort of, like, a strategy for how they can transmit information to each other to save as many as possible. How many can you save? Right, so I don't know whether I've just dredged this up from having heard this before in the past, but I think I can save 99. 99 is the correct answer. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to talk now, it wait, through? What, what's the order in which in which they get asked? They get asked from the person who can see the most. From the back to the front? Yeah. Well, in that case, my solution, which I propose, is that poor old person at the back's a bit of a martyr. They've got a 50-50 chance of surviving. Everybody else in front of them has a 100% chance of surviving. Yep. But the person at the back says the colour of the hat of the person directly in front of them. And then the, that person says the colour of the hat directly in front of... Oh, oh no, this doesn't work. Yes, good. Good thinking. This is exactly the line of thinking that everyone goes down. So, talk it through. Why doesn't it work? Because you can't say the colour of the hat in front of you and your own colour of your hat so you don't die. True. Most of the time. Yes. So, the situation here is the person at the back says the one in front of them. Then that person doesn't really have a free choice. They have to say their own colour of hat. Because they've just been told it. Yeah. So it's a bit like you save on... Well, you save half of them. Of the uh, 50 people that don't know their information, there's a half chance they're going to survive anyway. So you're definitely saving 50. On average, you're saving 75. You have a very, like, chained together prisoner's dilemma here, where people can either choose to take part in the scheme or they can choose to betray. Does betrayal help you? Because half the people don't have any information anyway. Let's say that I'm the person at the back... Yep. And I don't know my colour of hat, and I say white yep. to the person in front of me. They can then choose to say the colour of the person in front of them, or they can say their own colour hat. So their choice there is do the one which definitely saves themselves, or save the person in front of them. But the person yep. in front of them doesn't even know that they are being saved, if they think everyone's pairing off. So you enter into a fuzzy logic situation, because you, can, you know whether that person's been shot or not. Yeah. If they get shot... Yeah, and then like, there's a sort of like tailing level of betrayal, like that seeps in from the back because they might have been told the wrong thing, and maybe they were trying to betray, but they got it wrong, and they didn't really know. There's definitely something funny and interesting going on there that I that I don't really want to go into right now. Yeah, but there's a piece of game theory going on there, a probabilistic game theory, which is the best type. Okay, so the strategy you just came up with saves definitely half of them. Can you save two out of three? So if you imagine grouping them into threes. How can the person at the back of the three give enough information to save both of the others? Is, do you have to use some kind of like exclusive or function? It's like if they match. Can you flesh that out? It's something along the lines of if the person's hat is white and the person in front's hat is white, then they'll say black. Do you have to say like the opposite color of the the hat two in front or something like that? There's some kind of okay. So like... if you say um, say black, if they've got the same color hat, the two people in front of you, and white if they've got different color hats. Yeah. Then the second person along can see the hat in front of them. They know whether they've got the same colour hat or different colour hat than the person in front of them. So they can say their hat with certainty. The next person along hears that guess and also knows whether they've got the same colour hat or the different colour hat to the person behind them. So you can also guess correctly. Well, that works for three. And then you guess you could sort of break them into, into threes. When I heard this problem, when we were talking it through, we did the saving half of them. We did the saving two thirds of them. I came up with a strategy, which is actually going kind of down the wrong route, but saved 93 of them. Hmm. But the actual strategy here will solve 99 of them. So I'll tell you my strategy, 
and then I'll, I'll tell you the kind of uh, the general solution to this, which I think will be helpful for the problem we're going to deal with in a minute. Okay. So my theory was, if you knew in the 93 people at the front how many black hats there were, then if you were going along and you could see one fewer than that number of black hats, so you could say with certainty that you had a black hat. If you could see exactly that number of black hats, you could say you had a white hat. Because you're hearing each of those 93 people going along, you could just keep a count of how many black hats had gone past. So the only piece of information there to transmit is how many black hats there were. Hmm. Seven people in binary was enough to transmit how many black hats there were. Oh, I see. Using ones right. and zeros. You spend the first seven people expending their lives so that they can communicate to everybody else yeah. how many hats there were. Oh, I guess you're only communicating how many hats there are in the first 93. And again, each of those seven people has a half chance of getting it right anyway. So, that was my solution. The actual solution is more elegant. The idea here is you don't need to know how many black hats there are. It's just the majority, right? No. No, but that. You need to know the parity. Is the number of black hats odd or even? So, for the front 99 people, are there an even number of black hats or an odd number of black hats? Right. That's a piece yeah. of information you can encode in one bit. So you, you only yes. use the first person. And then, say you know there's an even number of black hats, as the next person log, person number two, you can say, you can either see an odd or an even number, and so you know whether you have a black hat or a white hat. Ta-da! So elegant. Yeah, that's really good. And it's one of those problems which I really like, because everyone can come up with a solution. They can come up with the um, saving 50 of them, but you can just keep going until you get to something which we know that's maximal, because the first person we can't save with certainty, because there's no information entering. So we know mm. we've got the best solution at that point. With that in mind, I present a problem from Andrew Slattery. It's of the same genre. Long-time listener, long-time writer. Yes, he's yeah. given us so many solutions over the, the episodes, it's, it's brilliant. Let there be P people and yeah. X different colours of hats going along. Yeah. What's going to happen is you've got a whole lot of prisoners with hats, and each person, they're not buried in a line in this one, each person can see every other person. So okay, they're in, they're in a big crowd. Yeah, it's a big, like, complete graph going on here. They are told how many different colours there are. So they're told the value of X. Say there are three different colours of hat. They are all told there are three different colours of hat. A warden goes along and picks someone that the warden chooses and says, okay, what colour hat do you have? And the person has to guess. And then they go to someone else and they have to guess and so on until they've asked everyone. Right. So again, everyone is asked. How many people can get it right? What's the maximum number of people that can get it right? Can I just say something that, like an answer that I expect it to be, but I have no idea how to get this answer? Yep. Is it n minus x plus 1? Uh, no, but okay. it's similar. <laughs> <laughs> or something like n minus x, purely because you might be able to play the same parity trick with the coloured hats, um, but you spend the first few people encoding odds and even of because everybody knows how many different coloured hats there are and so you could spend the first few just sort of encoding that in sort of alphabetical order or something like if it's if it's you build a big cycle of the different colours in alphabetical order and then if you you say the one before it if it's an even number and, and after it if it's an odd number and you can do that for the first three in the alphabetical order of the different colours and then maybe but the problem is you've got a set number of people there so they won't be able to count themselves but everybody knows that they can't see themselves anyway so maybe that's how you do it I know what the solution is I don't know how to get that the solution here is it's P minus 1 plus 1 over X 
Is this is this an expect expectation thing? Is there a number? Yes. Of yeah, that's stats. it. Stats, right? Yeah. So it's everyone gets it right apart from one of them, the first person, who has a one in however many colours of hats chance of getting it right. So if there's three different coloured hats, they've got a third chance of getting it right. This is clearly maximal. It's just how do we get there? I, I, and I guess. With that answer of what the solution is, then I guess you could claim with the previous problem that actually it's 99 and a half. Yes. Yeah, it's the same idea. It's yeah. everyone plus an expected value for the person at the beginning. Should we try breaking it down with smaller numbers of people? Try and build up a strategy? So to make it clear, the situation here is everyone is told the situation beforehand. They're told the value of X. So they're told how many different colour hats there's going to be. Yeah. So nobody's guessing that maybe they're their hat is some unknown colour with only one of it. And they're allowed to come up with a strategy knowing the number of colours beforehand. So it's not that they have to come up with a general solution, they just have to come up with the solution for the number of different y- colours that exist. Yes, that's it. Just a piece of insight here. Imagine you're the only person with your colour hat. You can see X minus one different colours. You know what colour your hat is. Yeah, it's a bit like that other problem with the villagers trying to get off the island and some, some of them are one colour and some of them the other. And they can all see each other. The, the, the connected graph thing is often one of these ones where the logic cascades from one person to the other, right? So for people that want to look that up, this is the Island of Paradox. The Island of Paradox. Um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's okay. horrifying and fascinating. But yes, there's a similar sort of logic going on. So, two people. If you know that there are two different colour hats... Then you just say the one that you can't see. And if you know... you. There's one one color hat. Then, well, then, you know. Yeah. In the X equals one situation, nobody dies. And that's always true, no matter how many Ever. people. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. So three people. That sounds like it would be more interesting. Well, so the two color situation, just for 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 X equals two, uh, is is three. Is it more interesting to go up the number of people, or is it is it easier to start with an unbounded number of people, or maybe a bounded? but medium-sized number of people, and then go up the number of colours. What's the what's the more interesting logical progression? To increase P or to increase X? I, I don't know. Okay, well, let's keep increasing P and find out. Okay, three people. If they've all got different colour hats, they know it immediately. Yeah. And if they've all got the same colour hat, they know immediately. Yes, but in two, in two colours, you don't know. Yeah. So, let's imagine we've got, like, a red, red, blue. Okay. The first person in the list is going to be the first person the warden sees. Which is just whoever. Let's say it's the first red person. We'll do the other case in a minute. Well, then they don't know. They don't know. They can see one of every colour, so they guess whatever. Everyone already knows what colour hat they have because they can see that person. How can the other two people work out that they definitely have the colour hat that they have? Uh, So they knew there were two colours. There were three people. Yep. Somebody has guessed, and they know that for them it is just a guess. Yep. And then you're down to the situation where P equals 2 again, Yep. which we already solved. So it's been reduced without any transfer of information. Let's say it's the red person, one of the two red people that guesses first. The next person along, they might think it's red, blue, blue. Ah, yeah, that's true. So I think what we but have they, to do... But they do... wouldn't... No, 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 no. But, but, if, but if the two colour hats were the same, if it was red, blue, blue, then the first person would not die. They wouldn't have died. They'd have definitely guessed red. Yeah. Why means that they guess red anyway? Well, then they wouldn't get killed. Okay. Right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I, I'm, that's probably unhelpfully trivial. Yeah, I, we're not, I think we're that's not, true. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we have to use the first person to encode some sort of information. 
some sort of like parity into the the problem to yeah. give the other people a chance. So because they've got a half chance anyway, if they can see a red hat and a blue hat, they might as well encode some information because they've got a half chance. So they could almost just say the hat of the person who's going next. Do we know the order? Let, let's say that we do. Let's say that they're going to go in a certain order. Because that makes things easier. Yeah. Let, let's try four. I think it's too trivial with three. So we've already worked out that if everyone has different hats or if everyone has the same hat, easy. Everyone guesses it right straight away. Because if everyone has different hats, then you can see X minus one hats. And so you, everyone just guesses. And if everyone has the same hat, well, then you just guess the same hat. So there's trivial solutions for X equals one and X equals P. Yes. It's the right. middle cases which are more interesting. So red, red, blue, green. So it's like yeah. two, one, one. Yeah. Okay. So if you are the only person with your colour hat, yep. then you're, you're always going to survive. I think it's worth saying here that as well as knowing X, the number of hats, there is a list somewhere of which colours are involved in the problem. Yes, I'd assume that too. Yep. Um, so we're interested in the case where one of the red people has been picked. Yeah. And okay. it doesn't matter when in the problem they get picked. Because when you get to the blue person, they say blue. When you get to the green person, they say green. It's the red people that don't know. They can see a a red, blue, and a green. They don't know which of those three they have. Right. Once they've guessed, either they get it right. Brilliant. You've saved definitely three people, and the other red one is the person guessing. Or if they get it wrong, then the other red person sees them guessing and getting it wrong, and knows they must be red. No, they don't know. They must be red. This is back to that thing that we talked about before with the insidious game theory probabilistic thing, because they may have just guessed randomly. They uh, don't know that they haven't just guessed randomly. They wouldn't have guessed randomly if they couldn't see a red, a blue, and a green. Did we just completely switch sides in that argument? <laughs> Didn't I make exactly your reasoning just then, earlier on? And then and then you went, oh yeah, yeah. And then, okay, right. And, and now, we're, now we're the other way around. Yeah. Yes, that's fair. So, if the last member of your tribe gets killed, then you're in a pretty good place. Yeah. So that's where you've got two people of the same. The other two possibilities are something along the lines of red, red, blue, blue, and something along the lines of red, 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 blue. I I think that latter case is going to be easier. So should we just knock it off first? Red, 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 blue? Yep. So three of the same. that is easier. Okay. And one different. So they know there are two different colours of hats. The blue person is unique so they'll be able to guess fine and the first red person to just say the colour that is most prominent there is the most of yeah okay which works for four people and two colours well let's check that works when you go to the problem of red red blue blue what happens there yeah uh doesn't <laughs> work <laughs> <laughs> oh or does it Mm, no, because if, if you are the second person in the red hat, let's say a red-hatted person has been picked first, if you're the second person in the red hat, you don't know whether your hat's red or blue if they say blue. We want to get to... Because we know the solution is only one person dies. Yeah. So how can we incur that information here? So there is a defined order to this. The problem is symmetrical, so it doesn't matter whether it's a red or a blue person that goes first, because they're just yeah, yeah. arbitrary names. Yeah. No, but it's it's more the um, I'm getting caught out because in my head I'm keep I keep imagining that it's completely random who gets picked next. Okay, but that's not the case. There's a queue of people. Okay, so let's say the first person who let's say is red guesses blue. What does the next person know? The next person knows that the first person could see two different colored hats. 
So when the next red person comes up, they know the other red person could see a red hat. Yeah. And so they know they were red. Yes. How does the logic work with the blue people? Let's say the first person said blue and got it wrong. Hmm. Because if they got it right, then we just reduce down to a three-person problem, and that's fine. I think this is a subset of the issue where if the the other last remaining member of your colour gets it wrong, then you're fine. If, you, if you're blue and you get picked, you don't really know what's going on, because you've seen somebody that's got their colour wrong, and then you have two other people of the other two colours. Going with your strategy of you say the one you see lo- uh, the most of, Yeah. that works here, doesn't it? Because the first person, red, could see one red and two blues. It says blue, right. which is the one they have most of. Yeah. So the red person knows that they are red, because otherwise the first person wouldn't have got it right, because they'd have been the only red. And all the blue people know there are more blues than reds that the first person could see. Right, so yeah, so that works. That works. Yeah. I don't know how this scales, though, because this is very case by case. This also works for two hats. You may struggle in a situation with, say, three hats, and then the person who is in the most frequent hat has not been picked yeah. next. Yeah. We need some sort of recursive thing that can reduce it any number of hats or any number of people into the one fewer. I'm struggling. Yeah, so am I. I, I think it's a hard problem. Hmm. Can you do your system that you mentioned before where the first certain number of people encode except they do it in like ternary or quaternary or like whatever it is for the number of hats but the, the problem is we know that there is a solution where only one person has to give up their life yeah I know but the last time we did that it led to the right answer so what we need is something that the first person can encode about the parity of the situation in a single guess. In a single guess, which is one bit of information, but where a bit has X different values, the number of different colours. Yeah. And you only have, let's say there are four different colours of hats and like a hundred people, which I'm finding easier to think in the broader sense rather than these smaller cases, because the smaller cases seem to have their own yep. you know, little corners that you can cling to. But in the larger case... You're in the middle of the void. Saying the one that they have most of was the thing we had for lower numbers. Yeah. So you have X number of hats. You have a variable that can be announced, a global variable that can take X different values. And so if you assign, you can do some probably some wacky thing to do with like... Oh, does the first person say the number of colours that have an odd number? And they say the number of colours by saying that colour. Like they encode the, co- the colours into a number. And then they say how many groups of hats they see that have an odd number of that number colour. Hmm. I'm just saying keywords now. But would that work? Yeah, the whole odd even thing. That sounds good. I don't know. Do we want to think that through? I think I'm going to leave it. We're like okay. 50 minutes in. Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so... If anyone can tell me if I'm right, please email us. I have a feeling I might be, but we're too tired of hats now. Um, <laughs> we're recording, and uh, currently we're sat at sort of like 55 minutes. I'm going to be heavily editing this down, <laughs> but we've been talking about hats for about an hour now, so uh, we're ready to move on. Okay. Let me know if I'm right. Yeah. Cool.
This was a problem that came in via email from Mitesh Patel. Ooh, and New person. New person. And actually, they reached out to me independently via LinkedIn, which is, uh, you know, a new one. But I was cool. not aware we, we were on that social network. Well, we don't, we're not, but I am. And so, uh, yeah, that's fine. First name, surname is out there somewhere. I don't really mind. That's fine. So Mitesh suggested a couple of different things, and I'm going to talk about one of them. Okay. So we're going to talk about Capricar's Constant. Now, uh, Capricar's Constant itself is the number 6,174. <laughs> it's nice and interesting. It's pretty good, right? Like, all of its digits are different. How does it factorize? So goes down to... 2 times 3 times 3 times 7 times 7 times 7. That was quick. Uh, I clicked on the link in the show notes. And one of the things on the right-hand side of Wikipedia is its factorization. Oh, I'm not Along with its, like, Roman numerals and that kind of thing. Okay. (laughs) Capricar's constant is the number that emerges if you keep repeating what's called Capricar's operation. Okay, how does it work? So, Capricar was a mathematician uh, who devised this uh, in India in 1949. Uh, Capricar's operation is as follows. If you have a four-digit number where all of the digits are not the same... Okay, should I pick an example? Yeah. Three, seven, two, nine. Three, seven, two, nine. You've done it again with your threes and sevens. Yep. Um, (laughs) I'm a predictable folk. You put the digits of that number in descending order. Okay. Nine, seven, three, two. And that's a new number. Yep. And then you put the digits of that number in ascending order. Two, three, seven, nine. And then you take the smaller one away from the larger one. Okay. Take the ascending away from the descending. Do some borrowing. So seven, three, five, three. And then you take that number you've got. Okay. And you do it again. Oh, okay. Um, Right, so it's borrowing. So I've got four, one, seven, six. And do I keep going? You keep going. You will find that eventually, almost universally, you will end up with 6174. Oh, it gets caught in a loop, does it? And the nice thing about 6174 is it resolves to itself. Okay, I'm there. Right. It took four operations. I don't really know what the average is. Do you have a maximum? So the maximum is eight. Okay. And there are 1,980 different numbers that it takes eight. Can you guess... Well, maybe you can already know, because we're both looking at stuff a little bit about this. <laughs> but can you guess which number of iterations is has the highest? So of the ones that don't get there? They all get there. Um, numbers which are all the same don't get there? Yeah, but it's defined at the beginning that you... Uh, uh, that those numbers aren't included. Yeah. Um, no. No, I don't know what sort of numbers can get there. It seems chaotic. It's a little funny. So... Obviously, there's only one that takes, like, one iteration to get there, and that's itself. Yep. So there's one that takes one iteration. 356, take two. 519, take three. 2124, take four. And that's the highest. And then, interestingly, it sort of halves and goes to 1124. Okay. Yeah, you know, approximately. And then goes back up again after that. So... It's not even thing going on or something. Don't really know what's going on there. Yeah. No. So, yeah, it's, it is interesting that it's 6174... Because everything goes to that one, except for ones where they're all the same, and it goes to zero. And it doesn't really go anywhere else. The question is, what's up with 6174? I mean, it's quite factor-dense. 
but it almost just seems a coincidence. It's never to do with time thing. It's to do with adding and subtracting. So basically what it is, is you take an arbitrary set of numbers, A, B, C, D. Yep. Where A, B, C, D is the the descending. And then you take away D, C, B, A. Okay. And then you're left with another set of A, B, C, D. Let's call them capital A, B, C, D. Yep. And then you've got, you've got the big D at the end is 10 plus D minus A. And then the big C at the end, which is like the second to last digit of this, yep. is 10 plus C minus 1 minus B. Uh, it's There's certain relations between B and C. Yeah, it's it's kind of unclear when they're carrying the powers. When you're taking over from the next 10, it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. so there's, there's, there's a little bit of that. So the back two have 10 plus because we know that uh, A is bigger than D. Yeah. And we know that B is bigger than C. And so you're left with these uh, simultaneous equations. And so you know that that result, A, B, C, D, is uh, going to repeat and go back to the same thing if the initial sort of lowercase A, B, C, D is just a shuffling of that. Yeah. So you, well, you take that and you solve it and you end up with A equals 7, B equals 6, C equals 4, and D equals 1. Okay. It's just solving some chance equations. Almost yes. it's more effort than it's worth. Rather than just iterating it. But then there's a bit of shuffling around, because obviously it isn't 7641 that's the answer. It's 6174. So you, you have 24 combinations. Uh, of how you could order those numbers. How you could order them. And only one of them appropriately satisfies all the conditions that um, A has to be bigger than B, bigger than C, bigger than D. But well, that we also solve those simultaneous equations where the answer... So this is for four numbers. Yes. For five numbers and- or... Well, n numbers. Is it always unique? It's not always stable. Sometimes you're put into a limit cycle. For three digits, you have 495. Yep. Is the sort of Capricar one. Okay. Are they called Capricar constants? Yeah, they're kind of called Capricar constants, but the four-digit one is the Capricar constant. It seems so arbitrary. It's four digits and it's in base 10 because this, this is base 10 dependent. Yeah. So in different bases, you'd have different Capricor constants. Yes, previous discussions notwithstanding uh, on the last episode. <laughs> yes, in base minus 10. Yeah. What's interesting is that two digits gets into a loop. Okay. Like you suggested. That's cool. So two digits ends up in the loop 9, 81, 63, 27, 45, and then back to 9. <laughs> so it's kind of weird that 4 is so nice. So Capricar's operation only takes every number to a unique kernel for three and four digit numbers. Oh. And so for two, you go into a loop. For five, you go into a loop. Yeah. Um, for six, it's uh, it bifurcates. Yeah. So sometimes you go to five four nine nine four five, and sometimes you go to six three one seven six four. Seven also doesn't have a stable solution. Uh, eight <laughs> has two, nine has two, and ten has three. It seems likely that you get more and more sets as you go higher and higher. Yeah, I know, right? And so the pattern goes 0110202223, which I don't know if that has its own pattern to it. So what's this the pattern of? This is the pattern of the number of stable solutions. Oh, okay. Obviously, one-digit numbers just go to zero as well. Yeah. I, I'd like to see a proof that is only three and four, or counterproof. Yeah, there hasn't really been a good or like famous article on it or paper in this millennium. 
Okay. It's it's kind of like a 1980s, 1990s type endeavor. Maybe it did get completely solved, but from my scant research on this before uh, hopping on this microphone, I haven't found a uh, <laughs> haven't found an answer. I'll delve deeper. Worth looking into, uh, and worth looking into whether it's understandable. Right, last problem. Mm-hmm. Um, slightly famous, but we're going to take a stab at one of the more complicated bits in it. This problem came from Thomas Vaness, who occasionally writes to the show. Okay. Uh, you've got two eggs, and you've got a hundred stories in your mega tower. Two eggs? Yep. Okay. Uh, it's going to be N eggs in a minute, but two okay. eggs to start with. Right. You've got a hundred stories, and... At some story, the egg will break when you drop it out of that window. Yeah. The eggs are identical. Once they're broken, you can't reuse them. How can you do the fewest number of drops so that you can identify at which floor the eggs break? Right. I know this one with the N eggs case. So I've never thought about two before. And especially haven't thought about in the case of fewest. So the safest is to go up one by one. Yep, just doing it linearly. Yeah, you, you, you drop from... Well, I don't know if you can really drop from the ground floor. And then you drop from the first floor, and you drop from the second floor, using the British flooring number system. <laughs> okay. Um, which perhaps we shouldn't use, yeah, because the American l- one makes more sense mathematically. Yeah, let's go one up to 100. Yeah. Although the American skips 13. We're not skipping anyway, 13. Let's uh, assume that it goes 1 to 100. Yeah, so you drop from 1, you drop from 2, you drop from 3, and so on, until an egg is broken. And then, actually, you only break one egg. You don't even need the second one. Yeah. Then you know. So if yeah. you had one egg, fine. That is the best solution. You just... Charge of destruction, linearly go up. Yeah. Two eggs, you, let's use If you had two of. eggs, I guess you just go up by two floors at a time, and then you go to the one below. So that would take, worst case scenario, 51. Yeah. Can you do better? With two eggs. It's like you're trying to minimise the maximum here. You're trying to make the worst case scenario as good as possible. Oh, can you drop it from, like, the middle, and then go from the bottom, like, before, if it doesn't, if, if, if it does crack, and then if it doesn't, then you just keep going up from there. Okay, so that... That, again, is going to take, worst case scenario, 50 or 51. Like, yeah. if you went to the 50th floor with your first one and it broke, then you have to go linearly up to 50. Yeah. So that seems pretty much identical. Then no, I don't know the answer to this. Okay, so entry number one into this. Imagine with the first egg, you go up every 10 floors. Oh, right, I see. Yes. Okay, and then you do it from there. You go to the 10th floor, the 20th floor, etc. Once your egg breaks, you know which group of 10 it's in. And then you go linearly through them. Well, how do you decide how many floors you go up? You just got to test it and see what's fastest. Well, we're going to have a better method in a minute. But with that one, it was almost just like chunking it into groups of 10. It's like you've got 100 in total. So the first egg you group into 10 groups of 10. And then your second one, you're finding where in your group of 10 you are. Yeah, but I kind of want to know what's most performant in the two egg situation. The problem with that one is in the worst case scenario... Imagine your first egg, you have to go up into the hundreds, like the hundredth floor. So you've had to do 10 drops then. Then you've got nine different floors, it could be 91 up to 100. And so in total, it would take 19. Yeah. If it was one of the lower ones, then you wouldn't have had to do that many drops of the first egg. And then you still have to do, say, nine or 10 drops of the second egg. Sure. Because we're trying to minimize the maximum number of drops here, what we want to do is even that out a bit. So imagine with your first egg, you went. 14 floors up. Yeah. Then the second one, you went to number 13 floors up. So you went to number 27. Then you went 12. Then you went 11, and so on. I'll explain why we got 14 in a minute. Yeah. 
Then once you find where you are in that group, you then go linearly up within it. Sure. What happens there is the ones which were fewer, like what the ones where the first egg was fewer, you've got, got less chance of it being those. You've got or less. You've got the less chance of reaching that because you do them later. You had to do fewer drops to get there, but you'd have to do more drops within it. Whereas the later ones, you'd have to do more drops to get there, but you'd have to do fewer drops within it. And so you make it so it all adds up to the same number. I see. Can you express that in a general form? General with numbers of eggs. General with egg number equals two. What's the the initial largest that you do based on the number of floors there are? You end up finding the sum of a geometric series. And it's like n times n plus one all over two equals the number of floors, which in our case was 100. Right. Times through by two, you get n open brackets n plus one equals two times whatever the number of floors was and taking it onto one side and solving the quadratic equation. Most of the time you're going to get some horrible decimal. Right. But it's like you want the next value up from that, the next integer value, because you're going to an mm. integer number of floors. Solving the quadratic equation in general, you get something with a big, like, third of one plus eight times the number of floors in it. But there is, like, a closed form for it that you right. can just plug numbers into. Right. Does it involve, like, a ceiling and a floor? So yeah, it, it's like the ceiling of that is your right. solution. For some reason, my, some of my favourite things in maths have ceilings and floors in, just because they really mess everything up, and I respect them for doing that. <laughs> they kind of ruin everything when they're necessary, but I, but I, I like that. The problem here is three eggs is non-trivial. Three eggs is non-trivial. I, I found solutions online, but they're all from computing people. It's all defining it as computer code as their solution rather than here's a nice close form they get some sort of recursive solution and I can see where the recursion comes from because when you're dropping three eggs you keep reducing down into the two case yeah you know you'd have to do that big ugly thing inside every new group yeah it turns into a dynamic programming problem it seems to be a common one for computing students but I can't find anyone with a nice mathematically closed form I suspect there isn't one hmm it's all just defined as this function of how many floors and how many eggs in a recursive way. Yeah. Whereas the one I'm familiar with yep. is the, the smallest number of times you drop an egg in order to find the answer. To do a binary search. You do, yeah. You would do a binary search. So you go from the middle, and then if it doesn't break, then you go halfway to the top. And then if it still doesn't break, you go, you know, another halfway between where you are yep. and there. And then if it does, then you go down. Yeah, that makes sense. That's how I was introduced to the eggs and floors problem. That's why I, I balked at two eggs, because to me, the, the eggs problem, dropping eggs, is, uh, is how quickly can you find the answer where yeah. you don't actually care about your eggs. Yeah. If someone can find a close form of it, I would like that, even if it isn't completely general, even if it's just, say, a closed form for three eggs. Alaric has relatively stringent requirements as to what counts as closed form. <laughs> Can't include trigonometry, apparently. Okay, so last episode, I came up with a better solution than our, like, sign of arctan of stuff. It was nice. It was still close form. Yeah, they were both close form. When I say close form, I suppose what I mean is nice. <laughs> Alaric means rational and preferably polynomial. And nice and finite. The sort of thing where you write it down and it brings a smile to my face. Right. I don't know how to quantify that, but there are some things in maths which are just pretty. Yes, and some people have different opinions as to what is and isn't pretty. I, I think that's what, what a lot of maths is. Hmm. 
Hmm. Which of these forms is prettiest? Well, so this is something that we've talked about a while ago. That's what thalliance is. I really like this idea. Do you remember thalliance? Yeah, so, I do. Thalliance is the successor to science. In a, in a world in which science has been solved, thalliance is the search for the most easily uh, intuitive and appropriate form of whichever uh, sort of grand unified theory or sub-theory within that is appropriate for that particular situation. Yep. Uh, and so it has a lot to do with aesthetics. It has a lot to do with um, computability. I haven't really ever seen anybody ever talk about thalliance ever since I discovered it on some obscure website. And so I don't know if it's like an actual concept like that is discussed academically, but I read sort of a one-pager about it. Well, that's like become it. the heart of this movement. Where the, the, the Thalians movement. The problem is you have to solve all of science first. Although I feel like I undergo Thalians when I... Actually, a lot of mathematicians, when they're arguing about, you know, whether to talk about um, trigonometry... Yeah. Using like the unit circle or using Socrates and stuff like that. Even that's sort of thalliance. Like um, ideas as to like the best way to learn certain things is a, a subset of thalliance. Uh, it, it's not as deep as the stuff where you're you know, reframing uh, grand unified theories in, in particular ways and in you know, particular bases. Remember bases? Do you remember last week when we talked about bases? That as well is, is an argument uh, under the realms of thalliance. It's an issue that comes up a lot when people are just learning maths at school. So, which of these forms do you want my answer in, says the student. It's something that comes with some intuition, because when you've seen more maths, you know which sort of form is more useful for things later on. But it's it's a very common question, and as the maths gets more complicated, it becomes highly non-obvious which form things should be presented in, which notation should we use. Even stuff about conventions as to which order you should write variables when they're multiplied together. Yeah. Like, small numbers first, then tall numbers, but keep them in alphabetical order and try not to use I and things like that. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. There's a barrier to entry for all of these things, and the best form would have the lowest barrier to entry. Possibly. Or possibly it would have the, uh, the way which lets you, once you're on the base level, get to the, uh, more complicated stuff in the It's, the, it's the, most, you, the most suitable for whichever scenario you're in. In conversations between us, I've mentioned the phrase uh, one for the book from Paul Erdish, often spelt Erdos. Mm-hmm. So he had an idea where God has some maths book which has the best, neatest, most elegant proof of all of the things in maths. And once you found that most elegant proof, that is it's one from God's book. One from right. the book. Yeah. <laughs> so one from the book or one for the book? Uh, I, I'm not sure which he said. Right. I, I think I like both forms of it. Because mm. one for the book is something we say to each other. Yeah. So we've been also reading regular posts that we get. Somebody, I forget who it was, Alaric or Fermian, gave quite a good way of doing subtraction and addition. Or was it just addition in base negative 10? It was addition and it was Andrew Slattery. Hooray. You know, of... Uh, the first problem of the podcast thing. And I had a go at it on my whiteboard at work. Yep. I say my whiteboard. It's everyone's whiteboard, but it's just sort of covered with stuff from our show. And maybe I should take a picture of it at some point. I would like to see um, that. Yeah, because I, I go downstairs to the fourth floor and I... Uh, you drop an egg out of the window. I drop an egg. I, I just throw an egg out of a window, just like, pass it by and go try this binary search. Um... And then I microwave my pasta, and in the one minute twenty in which I'm microwaving my pasta, I might start writing something on the board, and sometimes uh, it's something to do with what we have. So I've drawn out the solution for n equals six for the glass clinking thing that we talked about two or three okay. episodes ago. Yeah. 
and I started to do some addition in base negative 10. Okay. And I very quickly came across an inconsistency in the methodology. Uh, so, it's it's a really good methodology, don't get me wrong. So, what it is, is if you carry, then you instead of carrying 1, you carry minus 1. Uh, and then if that dips you into the negative numbers, then you have to add 10 to the whole thing. You've got to, kind of got to add, add an additional 10 to the pile, and then let that carry. Okay. Um, or, like, you got to... And then, you, so... So we I, did the 190 plus 190 equals 180 in nega 10. Nega decimal. Yeah. yeah. And so 0 and 0 makes 0. Yep. 9 and 9 makes 8. And carry a 1, but it's not really a 1. It's a minus 1. No, it's a minus 1. So you add together minus 1, 1 and 1 to get 1. Okay. And so you have 180. So that works. And, and then if you dip below 0, you turn that into a 9... And then you put a 1 into the next one. Okay, I see. The problem is, remember what we just did there, where we said it's kind of like 9 and 9, kind of make 8. It's kind of, in your head, you're like going 18. Yep. But of course, 18 isn't how you write 18 in negadecimal. So the workings involve decimal. That's what I don't like about it. It's very effective. But in my head, I'm thinking, and I don't know whether it's a problem with the, with the method, or whether I'm thinking in decimal when working through this negadecimal addition system. What you want is every step in between to be negadecimal. Yeah, I want it to be fluent in, in negadecimal, and maybe it is. Okay, so yeah, you think of it as, instead of 18, it's... Units. Well, what we were doing with that one that we're taking over, the kind of tens place, is we were making it minus one anyway. So can you think of it as minus one little ten plus eight? Yeah, I guess so. Or more like... Minus ten. You're taking you're taking minus ten over, which is the base. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It's a it, perhaps it's a remnant of sort of that we're so fluent with decimal that again, even in the clutches of negadecimal, we're trying to cling on to as much decimal as we possibly can. But it, it was certainly effective. Certainly a very effective way of doing it. Right, so thank you for coming along to the episode today. Special listener special. Thank you very much to our listeners who suggested those problems. Uh, God knows how long this is. We've been recording for quite a while, but hopefully I'll get it down to something listenable. For new listeners, what we do is we talk about how satisfied we were with the problems. Now, question. Do we want to do this when we have listener problems? Because feelings might get hurt. Or do we take responsibility for how satisfied we were oh, yeah. based on our ability to tackle the problem as humans? Oh, the problems are all great. It's just us. We're the uh, bottleneck. We're the problem. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna go. Let's let's do it. <laughs> so what was the first thing we did? Uh, we did hat problems. So Andrew Slattery suggested a problem with pea people and x different colours of hats, and we couldn't see the general case. But we did talk no. about some related problems. I still think it's that thing I said right at the end, but yep. I can't be bothered to work out if it's right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I think it might be. I like the uh, the parity that's involved in your thing. Yeah. I like talking about these prisoner in hat sort of problems. There's a whole subtype of them. Hmm. Um, we entered into some of the harder ones, but there are some more entry-level ones that people do as well. Can you combine them with river crossing problems, where it, the order of who's in front and who's behind changes as <laughs> you're crossing the river and looking out across the bank in a particular direction? I've certainly done lessons where I've included both of them. In a big prisoner's themed lesson. Right, I see. <laughs> do you do any curriculum maths? <laughs> yes, most of it. It's just I talk about the ones which are non-curriculum. 
Right. So how satisfied were you? Did you already say? Sorry. Eight. Oh. I know. I'm going high on this one. I like talking about these problems. They're some of my favourites. I'm going to do tentative ten if I was right. But otherwise, about a five. Okay. That's going to be hard to work out. Hmm. You know, our future historians. Yeah. Uh, and then we talked about this was one six from, one seven four. Yeah, from Mitesh Patel. Capricar's number. Yeah, I liked it. I like it. I don't think that it's hugely... I'm trying to work out how special it is. It is dependent on base 10, and it is dependent on how many digits you're doing. Yes. So this is a special case. I think what's more interesting is, are there any other unique numbers for a particular number of digits? Yes, I quite like the the concept of stable solutions to this. Yep. So as someone who has a dynamics background yep. so my masters I did a lot of um, <laughs> the ever-changing uh, masters the the ever-changing masters I, I, I did a lot of um, sort of solutions where you have the x-coordinate changes as a function of the position of the thing and the y-coordinate changes as a function of the position of the thing and so you have these big sort of flow diagrams where things move around yep and there's a concept in that of limit, limit cycles. cycles yep and so Limit cycles, uh, stable solutions, unstable solutions. Like, so if you take any of these, um, if you take 6174 and you were to make it 6175, like. It loops back. It falls back into orbit. It will fall back into orbit. Whereas if you had, let's say, in the case of 10, where you have 6333176664, if you tick that up by one, does it then shift over to 97530864211? Yep. Yeah. I, I love this sort of thing as well. Yeah. I think about a lot of things in terms of limit cycles. Um, life is a series of limit cycles. Uh, eventually, you will become stable. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, you're a limit cycle. Yeah, we're stuck in the loop of creating these episodes. Yeah. I'm happy in this and... loop. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little slower. Um, makes it a chaotic system. I'm going to give that one uh, 6174 out of 10. Um <laughs> no, no, you're not. Uh, I'm going to give it a. Hmm, hmm, going to give it a solid. Again, another five. It's just sort of Alex explains a thing. I'm going to go for three because it's base 10 dependent. What I want is the general proof of is it unique for any other number above four? We'll try and take that out. Yeah. And the last one uh, egg dropping. By Thomas Finesse. I like egg dot problems because they have things to do with computing, and I tend to enjoy the maths connected with computing. I'm sad again that we don't have a, a kind of final solution to that one. I, what I want is a closed form for three eggs. I I'm willing to accept that four eggs and above. We're just going to have to define it in this recursive function way and pop it into our dynamic programming. But for free, it feels like. There should be some nice close form, which wouldn't be too horrific. I could plug in the number of floors and get which floor I should go to first. It sounded like your answer to two was already on the horrific side. So I if guess it, it's just if it's solving shades a quadratic equation. Yeah. It'd be nice if this one was solving a cubic. Oh, that would be nice. Probably more likely to be a quartic though, isn't it? Well, the first one was linear for one egg. Yeah, so linear times linear is quadratic. Yeah. And then... Oh, okay, it might be quadratic times linear is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe. And cubic and cortex we can solve. 
it's a complexity problem, isn't it? It's like order n. Yeah. Order n cubed. So again, not feeling particularly satisfied. Just uh, having something we can do with a computer is, is the cop-out. Computers are cheating. I mean, computers have their place, but they're not one for the book. I I did enjoy it because I had not been exposed to those other categories of egg problem. Okay. For me, egg dropping is just a binary search thing. And I thought that the problem was going to be, oh, but, you know, sometimes gravity shifts 90 degrees. And so you're trying to find, you know, in two dimensions. I thought that's what the twist was going to be. Yep. Um, which is just not very interesting <laughs> either. Um, Four. Six. Yep. Okay, good. Well, thank you everybody for joining us for that special listener special. Da, 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 da. Um, I hope you had a good time. Alec, did you have a good time? I did. I never asked you if you had a good time. I, I, I do. I keep coming back. Okay, good. Let's think. What is it we can talk about at this juncture? How you can contact us. So, if you would like to contact the show to suggest problems for us to tackle, I think what I'm going to try and do is we'll have it so that Alaric brings one, I bring one, and then we have a listener one. Because we always do three, right? And so that's that's nice and tidy. Um, in cases where we don't have a listener one, and I guess we won't. And maybe we just arbitrarily just won't. Because yeah. we feel like there's something that we, we really want to do. But we're going to try. Um, and so please keep sending things through. Um, and you can do that by going to oddsandevenings.com and finding the contact form on there and filling in the contact form. Uh, we used to say the email address. If you want to know the email address, it's oddsevenings at gmail.com. It's a bit hard to remember. So the contact form is the best way to get into our email. Um, if you want to get to our uh, Twitter, that is at Odds and Evenings. Um, that's a good way of finding us. I check it all the time. I'm going to try and be a bit more active on the Twitter. Uh, it's been a bit quiet lately, so I'm going to try and man it a little more. But that doesn't mean we don't look at it. Uh, you can find me individually at, at @speakmouthwords on Twitter as well. Uh, apparently, you can also find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> Feel free to do that. <laughs> always, uh, always looking to expand my network. And uh, you can find Alaric at anywhere that you can find Odds and Evenings. Yep, I'll check them all. The music in the background is by David Russell 323, who has a chemistry background. He, uh, he knows his chemistry, and he knows his music. So maybe we'll have him on one day. And he lives, used to live in West Virginia. That's the background to him. I don't know where he lives now. Good. Well, <laughs> we're not going to have an abrupt ending like last time. We're going to give you a full send-off. It has been very lovely to speak to you, listener. I'm sure Alaric feels the same. I am. What? Yeah, I am, feel the same. <laughs> and uh, and we are see you next time. Bye bye. You need to stop. You never have noise. But you have the ice cream van. I do. (laughs) (laughs) You never, ever have external sound. That's so funny. Except for the postman that one time. Okay. So. Bit late. Bit late in the day for the ice cream man. (laughs) It's It's all a front.
Yeah. Useful. But we could try anyway. Yeah, so two people. Now, all of... <laughs> yeah, it is hmm. remarkably late for an ice cream. I'm not even on a main road. I live like a, down a back road. Hmm. Who are they tempting out? I don't know. <laughs> it's actually gangsters. They go along. <laughs> it's, it's a mob hit, but they turn up in the ice cream van. 